Well, good morning again, and welcome to Mount Calvary Church. We're grateful to be together this morning. We're going to be in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 2. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, uh, in the bulletin you notice the insert for Lent. Lent begins this Wednesday, and as a church, one of our habits of, of being a disciple of Jesus is the habit of fasting. And so this is a great time this Wednesday as we walk towards Easter Sunday uh, to get uncomfortable, to get uncomfortable, to give up something that you lean on so that you could depend more fully on Jesus. And so we encourage you each in your own way, lots of ways that you can do this, but we encourage you uh, to pray about that. Consider that. How can I better prepare myself for Easter Sunday and the, the beauty of resurrection of Jesus? And so that inserts in your bulletin. If you need resources or help, feel free to reach out to us. This morning we're in 2 Samuel chapter 2, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 3 this morning. And I'm going to warn you because th this is a tough chapter, couple of chapters. It's about to get ugly. Um, maybe it's not what you were hoping for this Sunday, but as I was preparing this week, you know, th this feels like Dateline. This feels like 2020, Lester Holt is coming on the TV, and we're, we're get, about to get into this, this story that is so loaded with so many complicated and sad and awful things. And as I was going through these chapters, I just kept coming back to this idea that nothing comes easy for David. Nothing comes easy. His life is full of adversity. I mean, we are just a few verses from when he was anointed king, which we've been anticipating and waiting for. And now we are into this whole story about a rival king and a rival commander that are out to get him. And so this morning we're going to see a gang fight and we're going to see family drama. We're going to see politics and posturing, sex, ambition, murder, and revenge and this is the sad series of events. It feels like a movie. But at the very end of chapter 3, we're going to see a better way. A better way with a better king, an alternative way. So as I look to organize these, these verses here, I'll put the questions on the screen. Uh, what does the way of man look like? What does the way of the king look like? And then how do we ensure we walk in the way of the king and not man? So how do we look like the king and not like the men that we're going to meet in these chapters. So let's pray, and we'll get into the story. And so, Father, we come to you this morning, and we want to meet you, even in a difficult, sad, complicated text. We want to meet you, the living God. You know us. You know each and every one of our deepest needs, what we long for, what we fear, what we want, where we want to be. And so, God, we pray that in ways that we can't even anticipate, Father, that you would come and meet us. Meet us in our deepest needs. Be gracious and merciful to teach us where we need to be taught, to encourage us where we're discouraged, to exhort us and convict us where we need to be convicted that because of your spirit and because of the truth of your word that we would leave different because of the truth of this crazy text this morning. 
But God, we know that you are powerful to move, and so that's what we ask, that you would move and work in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So with 70-some verses, we're not going to read every verse this morning. You're welcome. Um, Instead, I've broken up these chapters into four scenes, and we'll touch on each one of them. And really, the first three scenes with Abner and Joab, we're going to get the answer to the first question. What does the way of man look like? How does man, left to himself, handle the challenges or the desires or the problems of his life? And then the last one at the end of chapter 3 with King David, we'll see the way of the king. Our first scene, verses 12 through 17. Abner, the son of Ner, and servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to, said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helketh Hazurim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So we kind of come into this scene, first 11 verses of chapter 2. David has been very quietly anointed the king in the hills of Judah. And now the story starts to expand and unfold. And we're introduced to this new group of characters. We get to see Abner again, the son of Ner. So Abner was cousin to Saul. He was commander in Saul's army. If you think back through 1 Samuel, we ran into him several times. He was on the sidelines when David stepped up to fight Goliath. I mean, the implication in 1 Samuel is that Abner's on, that Abner's on the sidelines because he is fearful. Abner is addressed by David in the caves. We know that David and Abner would have known each other. They shared a table at the, at, with Saul together. And so here are two men who know each other, but it's pretty clear from what we know about Abner that here is a man who is a little Saul. He is Saul-like. He follows Saul. He believes what Saul believes. So in other words, he is not pro-David. He is against David. He despises David, and he despises David's power. And so that's why last week we talked about why Abner set up this new kingdom of Israel, not Judah where David was, but Ish-bosheth, the youngest, the youngest son of Saul. Abner finds him, and he props him up as king because he can control him and manipulate him, and he wants to use Ish-bosheth so that one day he will have the power. Abner will have the power for himself. And so in verse 12, it says, they went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Now we quickly read over that, but that's a significant detail about what Abner is doing. Why is he going to Gibeon? Mahanaim was probably 50 miles northwest of Gibeon. 
Okay, so this is a this is a serious journey down the mountain across the Jordan River. And Gibeon is right there on the edge of Jerusalem. Why would he be taking this journey? Why is he doing this? Well, this isn't a casual stroll. If you look at the, just the ge- geography of where these things are located, he's headed to Jerusalem. He wants to go and to attack and to get the power that he thinks is his. And so most think that this trip, because of how long it is and how dangerous it would have been because of the group that was with Abner, that this is an attack. Abner is on the prowl to go and to get David's kingdom. And then in verse 13, we're introduced to another character, Joab. Joab is to David what Abner is to Ishbosheth. So he's the commander. He's he is the nephew of David. So David would be his uncle. In 1 Samuel, when Saul made his intentions really clear about David, remember David's family came to him in the cave? Uh, this would have been Joab. Joab was one of the mighty warriors of David that went to him in the cave, that fought for David, that was beside David. And so likely he got word of this group of warriors headed to Jerusalem, and so they intercept them, they meet them. The text tells us at the pool of Gibeon, and they are on opposite sides of the pool. So the two armies, they meet at Willowwood, and they are ready to go. This is the text. This is these two groups. Verse 14, Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise before and compete before us. That's a really interesting verse because the word compete can mean a lot of different, can mean several different things depending on the context. Some, some places it has this idea of entertainment. So maybe Abner is suggesting that the men entertain them somehow in the swimming pool or play dodgeball. I don't know, but a lot of people say, what was Abner thinking when he said, let the men compete before us? Well, we're not entirely sure what he was thinking when he made this suggestion about competition, but we know what happens because of this suggestion. The 12, the 12 men from each side meet on the side of the pool, and they begin to do whatever they were doing, but it quickly escalates, and we know what happens. The text tells us all, verse 16, all fell down together. All 24 men, both sides, nobody wins, everybody dies. And I bet you Abner knew all along what was going to happen. But this wasn't just some, some innocent competition that a fight would break loose. Well, what happens? All 24 men, the battle in verse 17, we're told, is, was fierce, what, break, what starts with the 12 men meeting on the side of the pool escalates, and now both sides are fighting. Abner is somehow still alive. David's men win, wins, and Abner is now on the run. And so what does the way of man look like? Like, how does Abner, how is he dealing with what he wants in life? Well, he's violent. He's aggressive. He's self-seeking. He is thirsty for power, and so he gathers up the troops, and to get what he wants, he goes to fight and to take what he wants to be his. So there's this violence, senseless violence. I mean, just the idea that Abner caused this. He wants 
the throne, and he wants the scepter and the power. And that, so he concocts his whole story. He takes them in, and the senselessness of the fact in the story that all 24 men died. Nothing is accomplished. Nobody wins. This is Abner. This is the way of man. Senselessly violent. I will fight and I will be aggressive and I will kill and I will go after to get what I want. And there's a sense of this that we still see in our world today. I mean, it's not a hard connection. We see this kind of violence. We are violent people. I will fight and I will be aggressive and I will do what I have to do to get what I want to get. Physical violence. Physical violence. I mean, this, this, is, was, an easy, this was easy to illustrate. There is violence everywhere we turn. Go to a sporting event. Go to a school board meeting. Go anywhere and you are not safe from seeing the violence of man. Someone saying, I will show you. I will show you what is right. I will fight for what is mine. I want something and I will get it. And and we live in a culture in the church, out of the church, that, that lives on violence, physical violence. I've shared the story before. It, it was just astounding to me. I was walking my dog several months ago, many months ago, right, right by my house, right by like a block. I can see my house with my little dog and, and a guy on a moped and a guy in a car were out fighting in the middle of the road. I'm like, what do I do? How, what? I mean, cars are running, bike is running, and they are fist fighting, I think it was road rage, and, and I just stood there like, well, I tried to help. I tried to stop it. Dog, lick them. Do something. Intercept this. But we, we are violent, and if we're not physically violent, we're verbally violent. I mean, we say mean and abrasive and nasty things to get what we want. We're manipulative. We will say what we have to say to get what we most value for our kids and for ourselves, for our pride. We will write nasty emails. This is the way of man. And I think this is the picture we get with Abner. Here's a man to get what he wants. He will stop at nothing. 24 men die. And the story continues apart from what we even read We won't read it, but there's just more sadness, death, and violence. Joab's brother, the story tells us, Asahel, for reasons it doesn't really tell us, begins to chase Joab. And he's quick. He's given a nickname. It was actually, I thought it was interesting. This was one of my nicknames back in my soccer playing days. He's a wild, not wild gazelle. I was the gazelle of the team. He is chasing Joab. And it's like, why are you doing this? What point do you have to prove? And it's almost like Abner, if you read the story, is telling him, like, calm down. 
Like, don't keep chasing me, or this is not going to end well. Well, he continues to chase him, and then in verse 23, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out of his back, and he fell there, and he died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. The violence of the 12 on 12 breeds more violence and more death and more destruction than now Asahel, who didn't heed the warning of Abner, he also has died. And, and it's those last couple of words there in verse 23. I mean, everyone's in shock. All stood still. He must have been loved and respected. And there's this sense of sadness from both sides here. This is David's nephew, Joab's brother. He has died. And so the story just continues into our second episode, verses 6 through 13. While there was war, between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of the hall and from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does this land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, good, I will make a covenant with you. David says to Abner, good, I will, make, I will take the deal. So the picture here, the, as the kind of this way of man kind of gets clearer and clearer, it gets, it gets uglier and uglier. Abner is home. He's getting stronger. It almost seems like he's getting to the point of taking the throne from Ish. So what does he do? He sleeps with Rizpah. Now in the ancient Near East culture, to sleep with the deceased king's concubine was a way to say what was his is mine. And so it was clear what his actions were communicating to everyone. I am coming for the throne. And Ishbosheth sees this. I mean, he's not stupid. He sees what he's doing. And so he calls him out. What are you thinking? What are you doing? How can you do this? He's not going to let it happen. Well, then you have Abner give an eloquent, spiritual sounding speech there that we just read. And it's really shocking, frightening. I mean, he already did this in a section we didn't read there, the first part with Joab to stop the war. He, he sounds so spiritual. Yet clearly, what's he doing? He's, he's doing whatever he has to so that he's not trapped in a corner. He says, uh, to this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father. That's the Hesed love. That's the word of loving kindness, faithfulness in the Old Testament. He's saying, Look, I have given you the faithful love of God, and, and it's just not true. 
He, he is sounding spiritual because he is caught and stuck in a corner. Yet, Abner squirms free. He plays his ace. It's, it's almost like his path to power had hit a dead end with Ishbosheth because he sniffed out what he was doing. And so now that he's backed in a corner, what does he do? He's, I have one choice left. He says, I will go to David and I will bribe David, extort him. I will give him the power as king, which wasn't even his to give, Abner's, in exchange for peace and a covenant with David. So I will go to David. I will switch sides. And I will give to David what he longs for, not just king of Judah, but I will give him, I will make him king of all Israel. And so here we see the story just gets darker and murkier and sadder. Sexual immorality and deception and anger of Abner. I didn't even read the scene about David and his wife and her husband. That's right after verse 13. I mean, it's just a sad story. This is the way of man. This is the way of man. I will deceive to get what I want. I will do what I have to do to get what I want to get. And what's really sad about this part of the story is verse 10. He knew all along that it was David that was going to have the throne. I mean, did you catch that? Like, he knows the power doesn't lie with Ishbosheth, but God's covenant promise to David was going to happen. And isn't it just so sad that even though he has known the truth, that the throne, according to God's promise, lies with David, hasn't stopped him. It didn't stop him from the 12 on 12 from all the violence and all the anger and all the murder. But this is what sin does. This is how we are still today. We can know the truth, but not care about it. It doesn't impact us. It doesn't sway us. I was talking to someone this week. You know the truth, but you don't care. You want what you want, and you'll get it. And it doesn't matter what it costs. And so this is the way of man. If you're keeping notes, that's, just add that to the list. Deceptive. Immoral, prideful, the pride of Abner. And then we get our last scene, verse 20 through 27. When Abner came with 20 men to David David, at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and we will gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. And when Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king. He has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he's gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, 
Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. So you see, David's about ready to celebrate. He has this feast, the feast that he never got in his anointing at the beginning of the chapter. And now he is ready to celebrate. Abner is helping me get the throne for all of Israel, just like God had promised. But really, as you read it, it's just unsettling. Like, is it that easy for Abner? I mean, we have this picture of who he is, the same picture that Joab has, and it just feels too easy for Abner. But then Joab comes home. And he gets wind, the word that's repeated through this, this section of, this, of the story, peace, 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 peace. And he's thinking, what are you thinking, David? What, what, why are you doing this? Don't you see what's happening? Don't you see that you're being deceived? Why have you given him peace, 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 peace? Yet this is the way of the king. And, and, and so Joab cannot persuade David. And the text makes it really clear. The moment he leaves the presence of David, he doesn't, he doesn't think about what he's going to do next. He doesn't mull over it, spend some time wrestling. No, the moment he leaves the presence of David, he goes, he goes into action mode. He goes for blood. He goes for vengeance. And he calls Abner, and in much the same way that Abner killed his brother, Joab gets revenge. So what is the way of man? This time it's not Abner. This time it's Joab. And what do we see with Joab? Violence, bitterness, and unconstrained revenge. This is the way of man. This is the, the whole story. You get this just big concoction of all the ways that we deal with things, Abner and Joab included. I mean, how's this for a Valentine's Day week message? I was passing a church last week, and it was 1 Corinthians 13, not here at Mount Calvary. We get Joab, and we get Abner, and it is a twisted, confusing, dark chapter. There's just no other way to put it. The characters... They're complex. They're complex characters. Not like the movies you watch. We watched Dr. Doolittle a couple weeks ago with Robert Downey Jr. And when you watch the movie, it's very clear who is the good guy and who is the bad guy. Dr. Doolittle, his little friend, the polar bear, all these animals, the parrot, I forget all their names. They're all the good guys. It's really obvious from the very beginning of the movie these are the good guys. And then, after a little bit, you meet the wicked Dr. Mudfly. His name tells you, Mudfly, this guy's no good. His hair tells you, his look tells you, everything, he, everything he's wearing, this is the bad guy. There's no flip-flopping. When, when Dr. Mudfly entered into the movie, Jack leaned over to me and said, Dad, that's the bad guy, I can tell. And he was right. He is the bad guy the whole movie long. It's not complex. But that's not how 2 Samuel 2 and 3 is. It's not so cut and dry. There's no good guy and there's no bad guy. Each of the characters, Joab and Abner especially, they are a mixture of both good and bad. Commendable and not so commendable. It's complex and it's confusing. Look at Joab. I mean, he's violent. 
He's violent. He has revenge. But later in 2 Samuel, we're going to see some commendable qualities of Joab. Yet he's clearly bitter to the point of murder. And he's going to do it again in 2 Samuel. He's going to do it again. And it's not going to be honoring to God. And then Abner, he's not painted as wholly wicked in the story. If you read it carefully, there's a difference between how Abner murders Asahel than Joab's murder of Abner. Abner's murder happened in the context of war, of battle. And he, Abner warned him. He said, don't do this. I don't want to have to do this. So not even Abner is painted with this, this stroke of he's all whole, holy, wicked. And so what do we see here? We see even with David, and we're not going to jump on the David train here, but even David's not painted as fully good. What do we see? There is no one included in the story who is all good and all bad. And really, it's kind of like us. It's kind of like us. It's complex. Good days and bad days. We're capable of both. We're capable of being like Joab. We're capable of being violent like Abner. We, we have to come to grips with this reality that we are in this story and we're not King David who we're going to get to. But we are like Joab and we are like Abner. And we have to come to grips with this. We have to admit that. That yes, it, it is complex with how it works with us. And we know this to be true about ourselves. That we are capable of being violent with our words, are physically violent, of being deceptive, of being immoral, of being ruthless, of being selfish. And we have to admit that, we, even with the people we love the most. I'm doing some premarital counseling with two couples right now, and, and neither, both of the couples have both shared with me that they don't fight, ever. Like, wow, that's, that's great. But I had to tell them, this sounds, that's going to change. Not to, not to discourage you, but that's going to change. Like, you, you have Joab and Abner in you. And what happens is it's not just that you can be deceptive, but you will be deceptive and hurtful with the people you love the most. And that is the nature of sin welling up in our lives and in our hearts that when somebody encroaches upon our selfishness in our bad moments, we get ugly. Okay, but then we see another way. And I, this, the story closes here in chapter 3 with, with how David responds to all that's going on. Verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier and they buried Abner at Hebron. The king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them. As everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people around, all the people, all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today. The anointed king 
These men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. I mean, David's weeping again. It feels like every week David's weeping. I mean, over and over again. But this time, I mean, are you following the story? Why, David, are you mourning and fasting the loss of Abner of all people, David? What are you thinking? This is your rival who marched into Jerusalem to take the throne from you. But this was the way of the king. He was not ready for Abner to die. And and it kind of leaves us puzzled, like, why? We don't really know. Maybe maybe God was working in Abner's life. Maybe maybe he was. I mean, he came back to David. Maybe David felt like this was premature. Yes, he had the wrong motives, but maybe David felt like God was doing something. We don't really know. We just know that David was sad because of the loss of life, even the loss of Abner. And then it's the word at the very end of the chapter. What's the way of the, of the better king? He compares himself to the sons of Zariah, and he says, I was gentle. They were harsh, and I was gentle. David was the opposite from that. He was, and if you think about it, a lot of people have problems with David's punishment of Joab in this chapter. Why didn't David punish Joab with harsher punishment. Well, David was gentle, and I think that's what he's saying. I was gentle with Abner to let him come and to give him peace. I was gentle. I didn't give him what he deserved. I was merciful, and I dealt with him in humility and kindness and compassion, and he deals with Joab gently. I mean, if you think, David had all the power all the power to curse, to punish, to condemn, to choose violence, yet David restrained. He restrained. He could have punished. He could have taken, yet he did not. And and hopefully this sounds like another king. Hopefully this sounds like another king, a better king, an even better king than David. The, 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 The story where Jesus is being arrested on that night in the garden. You remember what Peter does? Whips out that sword, chops off in the arm. I mean, he's ready to choose violence, to, to protect and to take what's his. And what does Jesus say? Put your sword in its sheath, Peter. Now is not the time for violence. Jesus came with gentleness. And that is not a weak word. It's not a, that's not weakness. That's saying, I have more power, yet I am choosing to deal gently with someone. We're out of time, but if you remember the story of the woman at the well, I mean, it's one of my favorite stories in John 8. the The woman's guilty. She's guilty. She's dragged in front of Jesus. I mean, everyone knows that she has broken the law, and they're ready to stone her. They're ready to use violence to punish her. They are ready to employ the vengeance of God on this this woman. And what does Jesus do? He sends them away and he says to her, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus deals gently with the woman. But how can he say that? The law says, the law says this is what you have to do. She's condemned under the law. How can Jesus say 
I don't condemn you. Jesus knows the cost for not condemning her, and that's his condemnation for her. He's saying, I will deal gently with you because I'm about to be crucified. The stones that were going to be thrown to you, at you, to kill you, are going to be the nails that are driven into my wrists. He's saying, I don't have to deal harshly with you right here, right now. You, you are guilty, but I can deal gently with you because I'm about to be condemned for you. And this was the ministry of Jesus. He, the, the moment he's walking into Jerusalem on Holy Week, on Monday, the text tells us that he's weeping for Jerusalem. He's weeping over the sin of all the lies and the hypocrisy and the greed of the Pharisees. And what, he's not angry or seeking vengeance. I mean, he, he will, but at this moment as he's walking into Jerusalem, he is, he is weeping and mourning over the sin of the people. And then he's on the cross on, on Good Friday. And what does he do on the cross? He deals with the people gently. Father, forgive them. Forgive them. He's not raining down fire. Jesus, the king, comes and his way is better. David gives us a glimpse, but it is a hazy glimpse. It's an imperfect glimpse. But with Jesus, we see here's a man, fully God, who comes and he, and he lives in a way that honors the Father. And so the last question, and we're really out of time, how do we ensure that we live not as the way of man, but as the way of the king. And I'll leave you with one verse. I don't, I don't know if it's on the screen. Psalm 119, 112. How do we do it? Because here's the, the sermon is not go and try harder. Not go and stop being so mean. Stop being so violent. Just stop. That's not, that's not the conclusion from this sermon. How did David do it? How was David so gentle? I mean, all the adversity. Psalm 119, 112 says, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever. How does David do it? He says, my heart is inclined to the Father who has been faithful and loving and good to me. And when his heart is changed, he is empowered to do what he should do what he needs to do. It's not what he has to do all the time, but when he wants to do becomes what he ought to do. That's when David was changed. And the picture of Psalm 119 is, God, I will put my heart under you. And when my heart is captured by your faithful love, then I am empowered to be who I am supposed to be. And so for us today, the, the message isn't go and do and try. It's Take your heart, and as we sing this last song, be overwhelmed with the grace and the mercy of God for you through Jesus Christ. And as your heart just is infused with that love, let that pour out, with, pour out into your life this week. How you treat your spouse and how you treat your kids and your neighbors, it's not the way of man. It's not the way of man. It's, no, no. In Jesus, I am shown gentleness, and I'm shown compassion, and I'm shown a brokenness over the sin of people. So therefore, God, I will show that same kind of compassion and love. So let's pray and incline our hearts to the God that we're about to sing to. Father, we thank you for today. 
and it is a dark and twisted chapter. So is the way of man. And so is our way if we are left to ourselves. God, we are capable. We are capable of the worst things, and we have to come to grips with that. That our sin, left untouched apart from your grace and mercy, will become the ugliest, nastiest thing. But God, thanks be to Jesus Christ. Thanks be to Jesus that you came and you've changed our hearts and you've changed our lives by your grace. And I pray, God, that as we incline our hearts to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, God, that we will be infused with this picture of gentleness and compassion and love, that we would live in a way that shows that to everybody around us. To the name of Christ we pray, amen.